You're listening to episode 149 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. Hello, I'm Steph McKenna. And I'm Simon Jones. And it is the 4th of June 2021 here in Norwich. On the show today, we have Jesse Greengrass. But before we get to that, Steph, how did City of Literature go? Well, Simon, we had a lovely time at City of Literature. So the past two weeks, we were taking part in Norfolk and Norwich Festival, as we have discussed before on the podcast. We had events in the building in Dragon Hall, which was absolutely fabulous. We had a wonderful time welcoming people back into the building. And the sun was shining as well, which was a bonus. And we also had a bunch of events online as well, which were really fun to record and to meet those writers and have a chat and to experience back with audiences as they premiered on YouTube. If you didn't get a chance to sign up to any of those events in advance and catch them live as they happened, you can head over to the National Centre for Writing website. If you hit the City of Literature button under What's On, all of the events are still up for you to watch over on YouTube. You can also listen to our podcasts with Kerini Doherty, Abir Mukherjee and Derek Awusu. And we've also got an online version of Provenance, which was our event in Dragon Hall that you can now watch online and then follow up with Ayabami's conversation with Jean McNeil. Yeah, I love the fact that although you know we've been forced to go more digital than we might have otherwise because of the continuing lockdown restrictions and what have you, but actually it then kind of opens up the whole festival to anyone in the world anywhere and you don't even need to have shown up on the day. You can just go and catch up whenever you like. Yes, it's lovely that this kind of quality content is going to be with us forever now because we're going to leave it up on our digital channels. And also, as you mentioned, this it, it did open up our audiences, but it opened up opportunities for the writers that we were working with as well because a lot of the projects that they were discussing were things that they had come up with and created in the past year during lockdown so they were often either inspired by or a reaction to the things that were happening around us yeah many of the writers certainly weren't near to us but some of them weren't even in the uk and you know if we'd put on a a live physical event there's you know there's no guarantee they could have actually traveled to us even in ordinary times so yeah casting our net a bit wider for these kind of global events has been really fun. Absolutely. Simon, what have we got coming up now that City of Literature is over? We have lots and lots of stuff, Steph. So we our summers are always extremely busy and this year is, is no exception. And now that yeah, City of Literature is in the past, we can focus on what's coming next. So we have our Early Career Awards coming up and we announced the shortlists just a couple of days ago. You can head over to the website to find out all about those. So our Early Career Awards are a trio of awards celebrating writers who are at the start of their careers. We have the Desmond Elliott Prize, which we took over a couple of years ago. We have the UEA New Forms Prize and the Laura Kinsella Fellowship. Yes, so you've got a few weeks to dig deep into the Desmond Elliott Prize shortlist. We've announced three titles who are in the running to be crowned the best debut novel of the past 12 months. And the winner of that award, along with the UEA New Forms Award and Laura Kinsella Fellowship, will be announced on Thursday, the 1st of July. Watch this space. There's more information coming soon. Yeah, and the other big thing that is happening this month, later in June, is the International Literature Showcase. This is a project that has run for about eight years now in various forms, and the latest iteration has had us working with some really amazing curators, including Elif Shafak, Val McDermott, Jackie Kay, Owen Shears, and the next one coming up is Kai Miller, and he will be revealing his list 
of great writers to check out along with lots of new video material podcasts things to read it's going to be a whole week of exciting literature insight and to find out who is on Kai's list, you can check that out on Saturday, the 19th of June. Yes, I'm really looking forward to that. Many people will know Kai by name. He's an award-winning poet, essayist and fiction writer. And he's pulled together this wonderful list of unmissable emerging writers who are working in the UK. And we'll also be following up that announcement with a more in-depth conversation with Kai. And he's going to be telling us all about why he believes these 10 writers are influencing and shaping the UK's literature scene. So if you want to join in with that event, head over to our website under what's on, book some tickets for Kai Miller Presents. As I said, it's completely free of charge, but if you register in advance, it means we can send a streaming link directly to your inbox. Yeah, and the great thing about the ILS is that as well as showcasing incredible writers, it's also very much about taking a look at the literature sector, the industry, and kind of unpicking it and looking at what maybe is coming in the future and what we can can do better and in different ways. And of course, when we started this iteration of the ILS back in 2019, uh, we were not anticipating what would happen last year and indeed what is still happening this year. So this run of articles and videos and panels and discussions coming up in June is going to be an interesting opportunity to kind of reflect on the challenges and the opportunities that have come up in the last year due to COVID. More information on that will be up on the website very soon. Okay, so on the podcast today, we have guest interviewer Vicky Maitland, who's not been on the pod for a while, actually. And Vicky is talking with Jesse Greengrass. This connects to the International Literature Showcase because Jesse was one of the selections in Elif's list back in 2019. Yes, she was. So Jesse's first collection of short stories, An Account of the Decline of the Great Orc, According to the One Who Saw It, was published back in 2015. It won the Edge Hill Prize 2016 and a Somerset Maugham Award and was shortlisted for the Sunday Times PFD Young Writer of the Year Award. Her first novel was Sight and that was published in 2018. And she's followed that up this year with The High House. Yeah, I know Vicky is a big fan of The High House, so uh, let's hand over to Vicky talking to Jessie. Hi Jessie, how are you? Hi, I'm very well, thank you. Good, good. We're really pleased to have you on our podcast. You were one of the 10 exciting women writers selected by Elif Shafak as part of our International Literary Showcase a few years ago, but I don't think we've ever had you on the podcast before, so it's really lovely to speak to you. Um, yeah, thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. Before we get started, I just wanted to say uh, at the time of recording, it is publication week for your latest book, The High House. So congratulations for that. <laughs> thank you. Um, what's it like having a book published towards the end of lockdown? It is sort of, I mean, I guess having a book published is sort of a very odd experience anyway, in that everything is kind of all done, as far as I'm concerned, you know, a pretty long time in advance. So it's just there's a lot of hanging around um and I think that in non-lockdown times I'd go somewhere yeah. <laughs> and be and be away from it a little bit whereas uh, that that like it's very limited so it's just me sitting in my house kind of getting increasingly anxious <laughs> <laughs> well I would say you don't have to be anxious at all um the book is absolutely brilliant it's fantastic and so incredibly moving I've really enjoyed uh reading it over the That's past really week kind so. of you. thank you <laughs> it's really really lovely and the hardback copy of it is stunning as well just visually beautiful too yeah I, th- I think they did a really phenomenal job um, and it's got the different different covers as well, hasn't it, for different um, different editions? 
Um, yeah, so Waterstones have published their own edition, which is blue rather than green and has a, a little extra story at the end. Before we dive in and start talking all about it, I wondered if you wouldn't mind uh, giving your kind of elevator pitch for the book. How would you describe it? So it is it is a sort of apocalypse novel. It's set in a near a nearish well, I mean, I hope not, but a nearish future in which climate change has escalated um, into a, a sort of near worst case scenario. Um, and it's about the, the four main characters and it's about the way that they form, they kind of mi- mix themselves together to form a family. Um, and it's about the way that they sort of deal with it. Um, and they end up living in a house um, called the high house um together and they are survivors um and they are forced into a kind of domesticity by the, the limits of what's happened so it's very much about about them and their lives and the, the sort of really mundane things that disaster forces them to well, it's interesting you say that about the kind of the mundane things that disaster um how how that impacts because I kind of felt that um particularly reading this novel after experiencing the last 12 months I think it's given additional weight to those um those smaller domestic moments because you can kind of see the mirroring in what's happened over the last 12 months so I'm thinking of like the counting up of the supplies and then we've been limited by shops on the amount of toilet paper rice pasta all of that kind of stuff we've had to buy the um, kind of scarcity that we've created is something that they're forced into again from human creation and then the claustrophobia of being trapped in a house with a set number of people these characters are trapped in a house or trapped in an area with with the kind of limited external contact and then the daily rituals and kind of that importance of freedom I'm thinking of one of your main characters goes on really long runs and that's how she finds that freedom and finds that escape I know that's something a lot of people have turned to during lockdown and then the grief of losing people yeah and I wondered how much of this novel if any that you kind of went back to during the pandemic and looked at or had was it all kind of written up and and finalized um yeah it was done so it was finished pretty much about three weeks before the first lockdown Oh wow! um, which is a very funny time to finish writing a book about an apocalypse I mean, a lot of that, that is kind of accidental. And I mean, I would have had opportunities to go back and rewrite it. I mean, that there was still sort of sub-editing and copy yeah. editing to be done. But it felt like if I was to try and rewrite it in the light of the pandemic, it would just have been a different book. It would have, yeah. I would have, you know, had to write a different book. So yeah, that kind of resonance, I think, is accidental. But then also, I suppose, you know, what I was interested in was the way that, unless you are in the kind of very centre of a storm. In Mm. fact, what a lot of it is, is sort of quite boring. You know, I mean, exactly like this. You know, they they have a lot of kind of trauma, but it's it's all it's all very sort of low, you know, kind of low level. There's obviously a lot of loss, but but their day to day lives are not you know they they still have to do the cooking and they still have to yeah. eat and those those things become almost more important because of the difficulty of them 
And so they really are forced back into this kind of household routine. Yeah, which I which I think is very much what's happened to all of us. And as I, I also think that if you know that it, I don't, it's not an unremittingly miserable or unpositive. Not like I mean, I didn't no. mean it to be um, kind of without positivity. And I think that what they, you know, what they find or what I wanted them to find is that that they do it for one another. You know, they they there's a lot of love in it. And certainly during the last year, like I've got two small children and it is, you know, and obviously I think a lot of people have talked about the difficulties of lockdown with children, but God, like if I didn't have them, I mean, I just wouldn't have got out of bed for a year. I would have been, it would have, I would have been, you know, I am, I'm so grateful that I do have a family that I live with Yeah, because I just think, you know, those relationships are what I've lent on and been, you know, really driven up the wall by, but (laughs) yeah, because I think, for for me reading it there's so much of this story is about connection as much as it is about disconnect and you've got is it how do you say is it caro how you pronounce Carrot, it yeah yeah caro and paulie who have been thrown together by their parents and in many ways caro is kind of a more conventional mother figure to paulie than francesca but you've still got this really kind of powerful drive of, of motherhood kind of seeping its way into the story because obviously without Francesca, they wouldn't have the high house and they wouldn't have that safety and security. And then you've got Sally and Grandy pulled into this mix and all these figures are kind of rushing up against each other in what can feel like a claustrophobic environment despite the space and the kind of desolation around them. And so there's always this tension I found between the people who are there and the people who are not. And I think you play with that kind of ebb and flow of relationships really well and I wondered how you managed to find that middle ground between the tension and the conflict and as you said the kind of hopefulness and the pulling together of of relationships um I mean I think that so I think it was really it felt important when I started writing it that they are not a conventional family so there is um so Caro is Paulie's half-sister older half-sister and uh Sally her grandfather is grandy so and 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 then the, those two pairs are not related so it felt important that they were not a conventional family so they they don't have those assumed relationships you know the the interplay between them is is about the individuals rather than about what you kind of project onto it from their from you know their what their family relationships are yeah um but also i think that it's there i mean it really is there in the detail you know it's there in the fact that that those two kind of narratives are present there's the way that you feel about someone and how annoyed you are by them yeah on a kind of day-to-day basis but there's also the fact that it doesn't really matter because if you're caring for someone it doesn't matter how irritating they are you still have to make lunch and wash lunch up and and that act of care is what stops the relationship often from unraveling I think and that's very much you know where where the characters sort of locate their their love and their hope is in the ways that they kind of care for one another I think yeah yeah even while they are you know at times kind of frustrated and irritated I mean I think frustrated and irritated a lot by the the response the, the the way that they respond differently to what's happened to them yeah I think it's really kind of interesting because in many ways um I think Francesca's so that the mother figure who is absent from the vast majority of the of the novel could be seen as someone who's very um, uncaring towards her family and uncaring towards the people closest to her but at the same time it's almost the most caring character in the book and it's it's interesting I thought that she seems to be 
the driving force of this novel in so many ways, but we never hear directly from her, kind of in the same way that her climate warnings are never really Mm. heard and never listened to. And I wondered if she ever had a voice in the book. So we get the book told from the perspective of Caro and of Paulie and of Sally. We don't hear directly from Francesca. Was it always told through the lens of her children and the children? Yeah, it it was, and it that and also so the other the other older character in it, Grandy, also doesn't have a voice. Yeah. It felt that I I felt that it was important to to talk about the children. I mean, the, the you know that two of them are grown up children. Yeah, but I mean, or sort of very early, you know, they're in their early twenties. It felt important to have their voices because they aren't culpable. So mm. so Francesca, you know. She is caring. She cares for her children, it turns out. Um, but she also cares kind of very profoundly for the world. And that and and her I think her you know, the driving force of her character is that is that dilemma between caring for a for a for an increasingly damaged world and trying to do something about that and trying to protect your own family at home and making those choices. You know, she has to choose whether to go to the places where she's professionally needed or to stay yeah. at home where her family need her. But but I, it felt important that the people that are narrating the novel have not had to make those moral compromises, but they've also not been able to make those moral compromises because they were too, you know, they've been too young. Like they can't, yeah. there was nothing they could have done. But they're the ones that are dealing with the consequences, you know, which is which is very much what it's going to be like if we don't pull ourselves together, I think. Yeah, did you um, find yourself as you were writing, did did you have a kind of a sense that you were writing a call to arms? Because in many ways, as you've said, it, this isn't a book that is um, totally hopeless. You know, there's, there is hope and optimism and love um, throughout it. Did, did you feel like you were kind of writing a call to arms as you were writing it? No, but I felt that I was writing my own fear, I think. I think I felt that I was writing, you know, my own confusion and fear into it. So I didn't think, I didn't, I don't feel that it's, you know, I don't feel that I'm qualified to make any kind of call to arms or, or anything like that. But I think that I am, as, as a human being, qualified to say, God, this is, you know, I don't know. I don't know what this is and I don't know what to do about it and I'm frightened and I love this world you know and, yeah. I, and I want you know so I think that it was much more about articulating what that feels like. It's it's, it's interesting kind of thinking about the theme of this novel as kind of the climate change is, is pulled throughout it and I know it's not something that is new for you to write to so you've written about it in your short stories before and it isn't a new way of thinking either climate change has been around like we've been aware of climate change for years and years but it has been more urgent and more foregrounded in recent years I'm thinking particularly of activists like Greta Thunberg and people like that um was this something that you've wanted to write about in more depth and more detail for a number of years or was it a case of kind of waiting for the right vessels to tell the story through I think it it's not I think so I think the the sort of driver behind it was was a feeling 
that that is sort of more recent I think mm. that I can you know I can remember I guess my first memories of sort of climate activism are from the late 80s you know when when yeah. we were all saving the whales and um you know worried about the ozone layer and in the last few years I feel like I'm kind of looking back at that and thinking how how did we get from there to here and and you know all of those all of those things that that we were sort of you know that I watched on news round <laughs> about yeah. how you know possibly the you know if we if if this and this and this wasn't done then the world was going to start to warm up and somehow without it ever really seeming like anything much is happening we've gone from that to now when it's like every spring it just you know it's warmer and the daffodils open earlier and you yeah. know and, and and that's just here that's just here where we're very insulated from it you know there are there are people dying now you know, mm. there are people who are losing their homes. Australia is terrifying. Yeah. America, you know, the US is terrifying. It, like the the kind of the the terrible storms and the fires and and I think that 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 it was me kind of saying like I don't I, how did this happen? How did we? It feels like we sort of slept walked into it, even yeah. though we knew what was happening. And so I think I really wanted to write about how that how that happens, and then kind of project it forward a bit. And I. It, that was interesting too because it felt like that was really like on a much more speeded up scale that was what happened at the beginning of COVID you know it was like yeah we were kind of watching things happen elsewhere and just thinking oh you know that's really worrying and then suddenly we're all stuck in our houses not you know and you kind of go well how did that you know how did this happen why why didn't why didn't we do anything what's the mechanism that stops people from being able to think all right now is the time I don't know yeah that sense of there is something big just on the doorstep is and and our awareness of that as we're reading is some it's part of what makes reading this book um feel very very close to you so I was I was thinking as I was reading it I wonder when if if you had an idea of when this was set because it's it it's something that feels simultaneously really, really near, but also very far away and slightly alien and slightly um, yeah, distant in some ways. So I didn't have a particular timescale, but I think that I had a sort of vague idea that, the, that, the, the, that Caro and Sally would be born about now. Yeah. So they'd be being born now and then the unraveling that will happen over the next 20 years or that that could happen over the next 20 years is is the story of their childhoods yeah you know they're they're kind of starting off at this point when we're saying gosh you know things are getting a bit near the knuckle and and they're living through that and watching and and yeah and it's when it's always and it's always been in the background of their lives and and it becomes progressively more foregrounded and they're watching it not be averted because it's it's interesting that of, when you get to the um, high house and when they get to that that place of refuge, it enters this sort of timeless state. Because all of a sudden we're in a world where kind of the technology that we're all so reliant on is absent, and um, it kind of reverts to a, a different, simpler way of life, and you end up in this in this um, oddly timeless state, but where where time still feels very pressing yeah I mean I think that so there's a there's a little bit I mean they they, there is a bit of sort of they watch things particularly Sally you know watches watches things on her laptop and has 
you know, has this sort of quite uncomfortable sense that she needs to watch it because she needs to witness. Yeah. But also that she's not doing anything. So, you know, it, the, 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 the play between kind of witness and voyeurism when it comes to watching disasters on a screen is, mm. I think, you know, that's something that I feel. But, but yeah, as it goes on, the, the, you know, that they lose that, they lose those connections. But they are forced back into a sort of pre-technology, pre-technological existence of, you know, farming and eating. Yeah. <laughs> and then, I mean, it, so when we, when I first started writing it, we moved, we just moved um, to, from London to uh, Northumberland, North Northumberland. Um, yeah. and we don't live rurally, like we're in a town. It's quite a small town. It's a very nice town, but um, <laughs> <laughs> that's my plug. Um but with the house that we moved to had no heating um so we had um we had a wood burner a wood wow. burning stove um and we got heating finally this year it took a long time because <laughs> you don't you don't want to try and get central heating installed in a pandemic that's a really really <laughs> difficult thing to do so for a year you know we particularly the first winter when it was pretty cold I mean it gets quite cold up here we you know we would we were getting up first thing in the morning sweep the stove light the fire and then so much of our daily routine were based around was based around like not letting the fire go out mm. um and it and we were just you know that was that became that became one of the you know like well we mustn't run out of wood and also you know if you go out for too long and you haven't banked the fire up properly then you come home and the fire's gone out and it's really cold and you know and then then it takes ages for the house to warm up and you know and 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 we we sort of it was like being victorians but i mean yeah. all that that all that that took was they're not with there not being any heating you know not that not having central heating and I think one of the things that that made me realize is how like you know we're really not that far removed from those from from those things you know like yeah all of the sort of labor saving devices that we take for granted like you know hoovers and washing machines and tumble dryers and dishwashers they're you know they're pretty recent and yeah and prior to that actually people did have to spend quite a lot of their daily existence just doing those kind of fundamental caretaking I mean caretaking in both senses acts and all it would take for us to go back there is to lose the electricity for for half the day every day you know which we're not that far you know it's not that it's not that impossible that that could happen and then suddenly actually everyone is living in this world where you have to worry about keeping the fire going and you have to wash your clothes by hand so I think that that I felt that kind of closeness and, and the fact that, that again, I, I feel sort of mystified by how recently that change has happened and how it feels like we've kind of forgotten that that, that, was, that, that was what life was for the majority of human existence, you know. And, and it's still very much in touching distance with kind of grandparents and, and people that... that they they still remember those times it's still within lifetimes yeah absolutely and and also that you know the the changes that those things have um or that have happened you know simultaneously um and that have been part of those things to the places that we live and the ways that you know the ways that that the ways the community functions Mm. the jobs that people have you know those are really recent my grandfather who's still alive was um was a river pilot so he his job um up, was up, up the Thames estuary so his job was to take over from the captain of captains of ships and mm. bring those ships up 
up the estuary where you needed special, you know, special knowledge of the area. And he, you know, he'd get up at three o'clock in the morning and go and um, row, row, row a boat and then climb up a ladder onto a ship and then, you know, and then bring it up the Thames. He could navigate. I mean, he, when he, when he first started, like in the Merchant Navy in the, in the forties and fifties, he was navigating by the stars. You know, we're not, we're not (laughs) far away from that. He still has that knowledge. He has a sextant in his, in his house and he can sit in his garden in Felixstowe and be like, yeah, that's, you know, um, (laughs) But somehow it feels like we've just the pace has been so rapid that we've it just feels like that we've lost that that understanding of what of what our history was and how recent that history was. It's it's interesting that you share that story about your grandfather, actually, because it's reminded me of a moment with uh, my grandfather. So my granddad was um, a farmer. And when I was, my dad worked in an office. And so when I was little, if they came over for like Sunday lunch or something like that, he'd turn up in a suit. And my dad would be there in jeans. And I always say like, why is granddad in his work clothes? Because for me, a suit and tie was work clothes. Yeah. But for him, a pair of jeans was work clothes. And so he'd dress up nice on a Sunday, on a weekend, because he's coming to see people, whereas my dad would do the opposite. And it's that that really slight change that as a child, I just didn't understand and didn't comprehend. Yeah. I mean, those, those sort of norms have really changed very quickly. Yeah. And and yeah. And again, I mean, it, it just it feels like we've lost, we've sort of forgotten a lot of it. We've become quite insulated. Yeah. And that and that insulation is obviously what is now leading to, um, you know, rapid escalation in climate change. Yeah. So one of the another one of the the things the sort of precipitating not events but thoughts for the book was. Um, the the North Sea flood in the early fifties, which was like, was massive, and is is was the was the reason that the Thames Barrier was built. So it was a a tidal surge with the wind behind it that came. So it was it was absolutely devastating on the continent. And the Netherlands was like, mm. about a tenth of it was underwater. Um, but also here, all the way down the, the east coast, around, around Norfolk and Suffolk, down to, down to the Thames Estuary, um, there was a huge loss of life. Um, yeah. There were lots of people living in pre, prefab, so it was because it was sort of post-war. There were quite a lot of people who were living in kind of prefab huts, particularly around Canvey Island um, in the Thames Estuary, the huts that had not been intended for permanent occupation, and this v- a very sudden kind of huge surge of water came and just wiped those you know wiped them away people died in in central london and it, people died in uh, embankment um like two or three people and nobody nobody knows about it. <laughs> you know and the, so the thames estuary was built as a the thames barrier was built as a direct response to that um and when the thames barrier was first built it was they were needing it was needing to be used maybe once or twice a year and now it is it is almost it's almost constant that it you know the need for it to be closed to prevent that flood of water because you know because the north sea is is rising it feels like that's loss of memory around mm. history goes hand in hand with the feeling that we are probably exempt you know mm. because with we you know we this this is a country where you know we can get away with things or we have been getting away with things you know so uh, you know again it comes back to covid that the way that we were all like i mean yeah but surely it can't actually happen here yeah. like not really 
I mean, obviously it's happening in other places. There must be a reason that it's happening there because definitely we wouldn't let that happen here. And then obviously we absolutely <laughs> let it happen yeah. here. And I think that people's sort of cognitive responses to climate change are quite similar. You know, there's that feeling there's a feeling that well we've you know we've got a pretty we've got infrastructure, we've got warning systems, we'll yeah. we'll 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 manage to weather it. But actually if we kind of look to back to very recent history, we're not immune from the sea. It is that sense of kind of everything is fine until it isn't. Yeah. It's kind of interesting as as you were saying all of that. I was thinking, it kind of feels like the journey that Sally goes on, where she's got that really close connection to um, the past and that memory of the past through her Mm. grandfather, and then she goes away to university, and that kind of just drops away so so quickly, and then she's very rapidly brought back into into that world again. Yeah, and I think so. She also she goes she goes to university to study history, and she just it's like you know she really enjoys it, and she's very good at it. But also, she doesn't recognise her own history in it no. at all, and the history that she's been brought up kind of learning. Yeah, I think there there is a bit of that. That that's that, that's that's the way that she experiences it, and and that's quite a rupture as well because she kind of she goes to university and and she's she's building a life for herself, and then kind of is very brutally sort of brought back to the high house and this kind of agrarian existence what what we've been talking about is the the different lenses through which that you've addressed kind of the catastrophic climate change in this story you've got the the lens of kind of the local ecosystem I'm thinking particularly about the birds that Paulie becomes obsessed with and then you've got the communities and the way that's affected. So we've spoken about there's the story of the river flooding and changing a local community in the novel. But there's also the kind of the church community and Grandy's relationship to that. And then you've also got the individual. And there's that kind of the the weight of those three things is kind of in that order. So it's like building and building and building. And so and for me, it feels very natural that kind of the individual becomes becomes at the heart of that and you're always inside these characters so it makes everything just feel I don't know more more pungent in some way was this were you always kind of uh, moving between these characters or did you ever have extra voice did you ever have external voices um no so so it was always going to be sort of those character the the voices of these characters and just moving between them but then I think that that's partly because that's the way that I write and that's the way that I've always written is very much kind of from kind of inner monologues it would have felt unnatural to me anyway to to write in another way about it you know what what I'm interested in is the way that people kind of describe their own lives and paths and histories and the way that they try and sort of make sense out of their own stories and the the other the other thing is the book is written so you move between these three perspectives but then within those perspectives there's is kind of these short kind of fragmentary moments almost like um like vignettes of 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 moments between them and i think possibly because of that i ended up um inhaling this book in, in one sitting basically <laughs> and just kind of fled fled through it um and I'm just kind of interested in in that style of writing and, and why we were, were you particularly drawn to those kind of fragments for this in particular yeah I think it felt like a way of telling the story that didn't that wouldn't 
mm, I, you know, I didn't want it to be like, oh, and then, you know, this terrible thing happened and then everyone was very sad about it. And then this terrible thing happened and then yeah. everyone was very sad about that too. You know, what I, what I wanted was this kind of feeling of, of the kind of snippets of their very, or the, of, of their lives going on. Mm. And the, you know, that's, that's the main story. I think, you know, the, the, the main kind of, the main chunk of it is, is them, you know, in the kitchen, yeah. <laughs> like they, they spend a lot of time in the kitchen. Cause obviously you have to spend a lot of time in the kitchen and the, the disaster element is very much going on you know, off, off stage a lot of the time. Um, yeah. And yeah, that it felt like the the best way of kind of, also the best way of getting at their characters and getting at their relationships was was by these kind of very brief kind of snippets of conversation. And also, uh, you know, a way of keeping it going that didn't, that didn't feel so much like just reading a long series of um, descriptions of people cooking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and it's it's interesting as well. The the dialogue uh, in the book feels really, um, uh, really sparse in a lot of places, um, which I was really intriguing because you get such a strong sense of these characters and relationships. But actually, the moments where they're speaking to each other can be quite small. Yeah, I mean, I think I've always had quite an uncertain relationship with dialogue, and I've <laughs> um, <laughs> I've never really written any of it into anything before. Yeah. Um, but because this, so so, my, bef, most of the writing that I've done before has been like single voice. So it's like yeah. one person telling their own story. And um, because this had multiple characters, I needed, it felt like I, unless it was going to be just like three different accounts of the same events, it mm. needed, and it, they needed to talk to one another. So finding a way that I was comfortable with um, writing that. I think that what I was trying to do was was to kind of show what the dynamics were without having mm. to say what, without having to say what they were. Yeah. And there are, there are some writers who are really good at that. And so I did ape them. <laughs> a <little bit. laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that, I, I had to work quite hard at that, I think. I, I think it, I think it really, it really works. I think you get that sense of the kind of the complication of their relationships and the different, um, the different ways they're being kind of pulled towards each other and, um, pushing away from each other and kind of like like magnets kind of flipping over constantly never knowing if they're going to be snapped together or pushing pushing mm. apart so and we've said that there's a lot of kind of there is a lot of hope and love in this book but it is also deeply sad novel. I think I I think I cried three times whilst reading it <laughs> um but you do handle the grief in a really really delicate way and I think it's at those moments of grief that that is at its most acute that kind of pushing and pulling of relationships yeah I mean there there are some very sad things that happen and I think that one of the things that I was really aware of was the need to not get bogged down in those because Mm. I think that I think that I felt like it would be really easy to write a book that was just kind of miserable yeah um and pretty relentlessly insufferable to, to read you know you have to you have to make it a book that's that's like people are going to want to read otherwise um, you know what's the point so I, it felt really important to, to to kind of treat those really lightly and to not kind of get into descriptions of people's responses to them because I think that that anybody can do the imaginative work there themselves mm. um and to and so the, the trick was to sort of leave space for that yeah. for that to, for that to be for that to happen outside the book I think 
yeah a lot of lot of the sadness happens in the moments between when you move from one perspective to another or when you um when when you make that kind of jump in time that that's where a lot of the grieving takes place actually it's not with the characters it's when they're absent yeah and there's I think it's I think that that like I'm sort of aware that that's the way that people you know if someone's telling you a story about something that's very you know been d- d- about something difficult or sad that's happened to them you know that's how people speak you like if you're saying you'll get to you'll get to the difficult thing mm. and then and then you do sort of tail off yeah. if you're describing you know if you're saying oh um you know like when I was 22 my my mum died when I was 22 yeah. and that that exactly that's what you do you say you say it and then you sort of stop because you don't know what to say yeah. beyond that and that and that kind of that is where the grief is I think in that in that space mm. um the word you know in that space where there where there aren't words um which is quite a, which is quite difficult for a writer yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so yeah. there's a there's a lot of tailing off in the book there's a lot of people kind of getting to the end or getting not quite to the end of a thought and then sort mm. of drifting you know and then being interrupted by somebody else and that felt like a kind of an important but also quite a natural way of of allowing their sadness to be present without having to constantly go on about it yeah and I think that's something you do right at the very end of the book as well where we kind of get the final three uh, moments with each character and then as the reader you're left kind of in that moment at the end um processing everything that you've just read before um I think those those last three moments kind of they they pack such a lasting punch in many ways with with the reader. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I guess that that is the point. That yeah. is the point that the whole thing has been working towards. And I and I I I'd sort of purposefully wanted to leave them in their own you know in their own words and their own lives. I think to to leave them getting on. Yeah, and because because the the book starts um in in the high house when they're all there and then goes back and then we kind of pull back forward through time again so we're 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 back where we we started almost and then you get those those three voices at the end and then silence um yeah and that's yeah I mean I, I I didn't know how else to do it really I think um because I, you know, it doesn't have a particularly grand ending. There's nothing. There's no kind of big boom at the end. It is, and I think that that is that was one of the things that I wanted to kind of explore is that if you, it's not like, you know, it, it, if if this is what if this is what if this is what we're worrying about if what we're worrying about is climate change. It's not yeah. like it's not like there's going to be a big explosion and then you've either survived it or you haven't survived it. Mm. What it's going to be is a long series of you know a long series of smaller or greater catastrophes which some, which will alter people's lives to some extent in different mm. places and what will be left at the end of it is people just trying to get by you know which which we're extremely lucky you know I mean it's a privilege that we have in this country that I think it's really easy to forget that that is not our existence at the moment because that is in yeah. fact how it is for an awful lot of people and those are the people who are in the firing line they've always been the people in the firing line we've put them there we've kept yeah. them there you know and we are sitting here thinking maybe it won't happen to us because it's because it's going to happen to them you know yeah like yeah that that 
desperate unfairness um was something that I you know I didn't feel like I could talk about directly but I hope that a little bit of that comes through in the book yeah no I think it certainly does and I think that you you then put put your reader in that in that position you kind of you get a, a taste of that unfairness yeah and 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 the the you know I don't know I don't know what we do about that. I mean, you know, we talk about it, we write a book about it. I, I don't know. I don't know beyond that. I don't yeah. know. And so much of the book, I feel like, is me just saying, I don't know. I don't yeah. know. This is like, you know, this is the situation as I see it. I don't know what we do about it. None of the people in the book know what we what we should do about it. Francesca thinks she knows, but then it happens anyway. You know, even the person yeah. in the book who is who is who has the most kind of knowledge and expertise still is unable to do anything materially to avert the crisis and 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 yet as as a reader as as well I kind of started thinking more about my my own relationship to uh climate change and the small things I can do so I think it does have that kind of that double of that questioning of we don't know what to do but here are the here are the small things we can and here are the things we can we can change in our own small ways yeah and I think that that's you know that's again the sort of that's the domestic part of it is that you yeah. you can't look at the grand picture too much because it's just too much and so yeah that the way to deal with that I think is to focus on on the very small things that one can do and to try and do those to the best of one's ability which is always going to be you know imperfect and that's okay yeah. um because it's it's the doing them it's it you know they the, the, those things like you know not using disposable cups like it's an act mm. of care it's an act of love to, towards the world if nothing else you know and and if you're if you're looking after a person who is unwell you know you're not going to make them better by bringing them mm. cups of tea but but you can make them you know you you, you do it anyway because it's about yeah. that's that's where love is you know uh, I think that's a lovely note to end things on that the, the act of care and the act of love is is all you can all you can do and all you can give yep <laughs> <laughs> fantastic thanks Jesse. thank you thanks for listening and thanks to Jesse and Vicky for the conversation if you have any questions or you want to get in touch with us you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre or on Facebook and you can find out more about the City of Literature programme, the International Literature Showcase and all of our other programmes and events on our website nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. As a UK registered charity we rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. Please do consider making a donation by heading over to the website and clicking on the support us tab. We also have a Discord community. If you're a writer and would like to meet some other writers from around the world and discuss tips, techniques and share your work, I do recommend heading over there. You can find a link down in the show notes. Please do subscribe to the podcast and rate and review the show because it helps other people to find us. Thanks again. Keep writing and we'll catch you on the next episode. Mm -hmm.